Uh, Ephesians 3, last Sunday we, we looked at Paul's explanation of his calling and ministry in verses 7 through 13. That's actually from, I guess from chapter 3, verse 1 to 13, that's kind of his explanation of his calling and ministry. But we kind of wrapped up all of that last week. This morning we're going to look at his, I believe it's his second prayer for the Ephesians in verses 14 to 21. What I'm saying is I've only seen one prayer in the book so far, although that doesn't mean that there isn't another one there that I just failed to realize as a prayer, but I think this is his second one in the book, and that's what we're going to look at today. It's 14 through 21, so you can kind of put your finger there. Um, Something that I noticed is that almost every prayer of Paul's that is recorded in Scripture was for the spiritual welfare of others. It's just pretty much what he prayed for. You know, if you look through his epistles, through his letters, he's, you know, whenever he prays, he's always praying for the the welfare and the benefit of those whom he's writing to or those whom he knows. So that's kind of what he's about. Even when he was persecuted and imprisoned and in need of many things for his own welfare, he prayed primarily for fellow believers that they might be spiritually protected and strengthened. Uh, the selflessness of this guy is just, you know, second to Christ. I mean, when he's in the midst of, of imprisonment and being chained to a guard and persecution and beatings and stonings and all the things that he went through during his missionary you know, travels, whenever he writes to a church, whenever he writes to his beloved, if you will, he's just, I hope you're doing well, and, and I, I'm praying that you're strengthened, and I'm praying that you're safe, and it's just amazing, the selflessness of this guy. And even, another thing you'll notice, even when he prayed for himself, right, because you can see some of that too, he would pray to the Father too for himself, what does he pray for? that he might be able to serve the Lord and the Lord's people more effectively. <laughs> he doesn't pray for, well, you know, Christmas is coming, and uh, I need some of those Traeger parts, Lord. You know exactly what my heart is about. You know, he doesn't pray selfish prayers. He prays for the Lord's glory and for his own ministry to be more effective and for others. It's, it's pretty astounding. And, and quite frankly, knowing me and then looking at his prayers, it's, it's even kind of embarrassing because of how this Christian man prayed and then comparing him to myself and and how I pray. It's like, wow, Uh, maybe there's things that I don't get, uh, obviously. And and so we're going to read this text and then we're going to study through it. And it really is one of Paul's prayer. And my prayer for us and for myself is that we would, you know, what can we learn from his prayer here and what can we apply and what can we begin to do? So our main text is 314 to 21, chapter 3 of Ephesians. I'll read it. Are you there? You're there? Okay, good. Make sure to give you time to get there. 314 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all uh, that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we uh, just stand before your word here, God, I pray that we would be humbled, that our spirits would be quieted, um, that we would, I know it's the time of year when we start getting stressed with the shopping and Black Death Friday and Christmas, which has become just a consumeristic sort of thing and just the stresses. Um, God, I pray that you would just quell our spirits, that we would not be distracted during this time, that we could just stand at the foot of the cross and listen to you proclaim your word to us in all its majesty and glory, that it would penetrate us and sanctify, sanctify us Make us more like Christ today. We might leave here as different people, more like Him. And we give you our attention and our focus, and we pray that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. First thing we notice here is that Paul repeated the first three words of verse 1 where he actually wrote for this reason. Look back just a little bit at the beginning of the chapter there. Do you see where it says for this reason? Most of your translations should say that. So what he's doing is he's repeating here what he's already said, right? At the beginning of this chapter, Paul was headed towards prayer. He was headed towards prayer. He said for this reason. He was already setting up to pray, but then he broke away for a moment to describe his calling and ministry in verses 2 through 13, which should be viewed as in parentheses, okay? That's the way that you should view that right there. Why they didn't sink it into parentheses, I don't know, maybe because it's such a big section, but that's the way that you ought to look at it too, through 13 ought to be in parentheses. He starts to pray and then he stops and he describes his calling and ministry again, maybe to establish his authority, maybe to cover a few more doctrines before he hits this prayer. So that's what we see happening. That's the first thing we notice. And then in verse 14, we see him return, right, to his prayer. He repeats, okay, I'm going to pray now. Now I'm going to pray. I had to say a few more things. Now I'm going to pray. So that's what we see happening. So the reason about which Paul speaks and prays is therefore found in chapter 2 where he described the Ephesians' new identity, if you will, right? Because he starts chapter 3 with, uh, I, or he says, for this reason. So he's praying for what he said at the end of chapter 2 or chapter 2. And he, he had described all these marvelous things in chapter 2, that they were spiritually alive in Christ, that's 2, 5, and they were God's workmanship, that's in verse 10. They were fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, verse 19. They were 
built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's verse 20. They were being built together, right, as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, verse 22, right? So Paul's prayer in chapter 3 has to do with those things. He's praying over those things for the Ephesians. He's listed all these things that they are, and now he begins to pray. So that's what's actually taking place. And, and what he's essentially praying for is their ability to comprehend what he has written You are this, 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 and this. You have this, 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 and this. And so now he begins to pray that they would be able to comprehend who they are and what they have. Or to recognize, same thing really, to recognize God's power in their lives. Because we've already learned in the previous chapter that who they are and what they have, who they've become and all of these things are due to God's supernatural, off-the-chain power. It's all due to God's power. And so he's beginning to pray that they would realize this, that they would understand what it is that's caused this for them and who they are. I want you to notice a couple of things uh, before we move on, and that would be Paul's posture, or I would say his reverence. It says, I bow my knees. I bow my knees. So when he prays, he bows his knees. You know, when Paul approached God... He humbled himself. He fell prostrate, which is a weird word, uh, but it just means to bow uh, in maybe in submission to God. And so that's his position, right? That's what he did. And I do believe that that is the rightful position of prayer, right? To bow our knees, to prostrate ourselves, uh, to lay down before God, to submit to him. I think that's the right position, We should bow before our God in reverence when we pray, but I I know that that's not very practical at times, right? I mean, you can't prostrate yourself while you're driving down the road, let alone close your eyes. Of course, some of you do that. Um, That's why there's fire hydrants, you know, going off. Uh, We can't, you know, at work it would be very tough to, you know, uh, hold on a second. You know, that would be really... If you're at Gallo, you know, the bottles would pile up. I don't know how that works. Uh, You just can't, it's not practical to say that, well, every time we pray, we need to bow in it. And I don't think that at all is what he's saying. But what we should get out of this here is that do we do this at all ever? Because there are a zillion times where we're not at work and when we're in a, in a private place or we're at home where we actually can bow, when we're at church where we actually can bow, prostrate ourselves before God, right? There's a zillion other ways that we can do that or other times and places. And, and the question is, do we do this? Um, most of my praying happens at home and I'm usually sitting somewhere, a meal table, the meal table, or maybe on the couch and, and just the spirit says, you know, pray and I pray or some, somebody texts me something and you pray for so-and-so, you know, they're sick and I pray. I just kind of do it. I don't really go through a process. I just kind of pray when I'm sitting or standing, sometimes when I'm lying in bed, but I'm not going to say that I'm deliberately prostrating myself before God. I'm trying to go to bed, right? So how often do we actually, are we intentional with this where we come before God and we bow ourselves, we prostrate ourselves. I don't think it's often enough. It may be pretty much never for most of us. 
how often do we do this? Maybe, maybe it's something that we should consider or reconsider doing. I mean, if the Apostle Paul did it, is he not setting an example for us in Scripture here? I bow my knees. I think it conveys something very powerful, and that's submission. Right? We bow before God. We submit to Him and to His authority and to His glory. It's a good thing. Notice also whom Paul prayed to. It says the Father. Uh, when Paul went to his knees to pray to God, he thought of God as a Father, as a loving and caring Father, and that is exactly who God is. Uh, he is the Father of His children, the Father of believers. Um, and I totally believe that we should address God this way. We should call out to our Father. We should call out to our Abba Father, which basically means Daddy. It's just a, it's a, it's like a, an endearing or an intimate kind of thing that we get to do. I, I think it's just wonderful, and I wonder if you think it's wonderful, that, that to know that God, right, the perfect and, and holy creator of all things and all people, of everything, and He's just infinite, infinite. And for finite beings, we really don't understand the concept of, of something that is infinite, but He is infinite, and He is the creator, and He's perfectly holy, and, and just really, in a sense, beyond reality. And, and yet, and yet, here is this ultimate awesome. And, you know, we say pizza is awesome. Pizza is not awesome. God is awesome. Pizza is good, right? A burrito is good. It's, that was an awesome burrito. Really, the burrito was better than God? Well, for some people, absolutely. The burrito is God. Uh, it's silly, but God is their stomachs. I remember that passage. It's amazing that we have this infinite, holy, perfect creator God, all-powerful, all-wise, and all of that, and what he says to his children is, call me daddy. That's just mind-blowing. When Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, he's saying, I bow my knees before, my knees before dad, before Abba. I don't think we should go any farther. Let's just stop here, pray, and go about our business, right? Because this is, this is staggering, beloved, that the Creator God, the ultimate, would invite us to call Him Daddy, and that He would, equally staggering, consider us His children. We call Him Daddy, He calls us son. We call Him Daddy, He calls us daughter. We call him dad, he calls us beloved. Incredible. Incredible. Now look at uh, verse 15. <clears throat> this is where it gets interesting, right? Not that it isn't interesting already. It says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named... What on earth does he mean by this? Paul seems to have identified God, the Father here, as the universal Father and name giver of every family in heaven and on earth. 
right at first glance. I mean, that's pretty much what it says, right? So at first glance, at a cursory reading, it's like, okay, so he's talking about all people in these. But is that what Paul actually intended here? Did he mean to paint the Father as the universal Father of all and the name giver of all? Is that what he's intending here in the midst of this incredible passage? Did he want the Ephesians to think of God in this sort of universal way? No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. See, when you take these kinds of texts and you don't have them in context, which, and the context is chapter 1, 2, and the beginning of 3, there's your context. When you take these passages, you universalize them and make them apply to everyone. But when you look at them in context, that is where you find the true meaning. So is he referring to God in some universalistic kind of way? No, no, no. The context will not allow that kind of interpretation. To think that would be to introduce a foreign thought into this amazing passage that is fluid and has total continuity. To bring that in would be to like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you have all of these white sheep, and then you take this black sheep and go, and you're like, ha, ha, that's what happens. Paul has been, let me try to help you understand how it works. Paul has been writing about the covenant community of God and about the joining together of Gentiles and Jews in what? God's household, God's family. Okay, Paul has been speaking specifically in all of Ephesians so far about the family of God. And so that is how we must interpret verse 15. Every family in heaven and on earth is a reference to God's family. It is a reference to the church, not every living person or person who has died. And first of all, we know that not every family that has passed away has even gone to heaven. We know that. Not everyone is saved. Think of it like this. There are believers who have gone to heaven. Paul says they have fallen asleep, essentially. There are believers who have gone to heaven, and there are believers on earth. There were believers on earth when Paul wrote this. The family of God is divided in a sense. There are some that are with the Lord in His presence, and there are some on earth. And every believer has been named by the Father, by God. We are called His children. We are called His beloved with a lowercase b. God is certainly the creator of all people and every family, but He is not the father of all people and every family. There is a difference. Creator has to do with the physical or temporal as in God created all things and people. Okay? Father has to do with the spiritual. There's a difference between God as creator and God as father. God does create all things, but he does not father all people. Not in a spiritual sense. God is the father of those who have been born or will be born of God spiritually by the Holy Spirit. That's John chapters 1 and chapter 3. That's what we read there. God is the Father of the living, right? Those who have been brought to spiritual life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. 32. 
God is the father of those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 4.16. There is a difference. God has created all families. He has created all people. But he is the father of his family. And his family bears his name. Or he has named every family member in his family his child, beloved, and in the larger sense, church. So that's what he's saying here. He is referencing the church. And, and his description here gives us the idea, because it kind of says all or every, that the church is very, very large, which is affirmed in Revelation 7, 9. The church is very large. Right? We tend to think it's just RHC or, or you know, when I was at Big Valley, this is the only spot where God really is, right? You know, these are the things that we think when we're a part of a church, and how foolish of us to think that. The church is very, very big. I don't think it's billions and billions and billions and billions. I don't know. Could be. It's very vast. So how wonderful is it to know that as believers, we are named by God the Father, that he calls us his children and beloved. As believers, too, we have been given the ability, right, and privilege to address him as father, as dad, as daddy. And how does God respond to us when we refer to him as daddy? He calls us his sons and daughters. Yes, son. Yes, daughter. This is just incredible. That is the father whom Paul prayed to. He prayed to the father of this spiritual family, the church, which is in heaven and which is on earth. Now let's begin to look at the content of his prayer, verse 16. This is where we see the content of his prayer, right? This part, so far we've kind of seen his introductory statements or his lead in. Now we look at the content. Uh, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power, with power through his spirit in your inner being. From the beginning of the letter, Paul has been exulting over the riches of God's glory. He has. In chapter 1, verse 3, he wrote, God has blessed us with every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places uh, in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, he wrote, God chose us for himself before the foundation of the world. In chapter 1, verse 11, he wrote, God has given us an inheritance with his son, Jesus Christ. You know, these things, and there's so many more there, I didn't want to read them all. We've been through them. But these things and the others have to do with the riches of God's glory. In verse 16, Paul prayed that God the Father would strengthen the Ephesians in their inner being through the Holy Spirit in accordance with these tremendous riches, the riches of His glory. Paul was not praying for the Father to give these riches to the Ephesians. He was not praying, okay, God, begin to release these things in their lives give them these things, grant them these things. That's not what he prays for here. Why? Because they already possessed them. They were theirs. These things belong to them. 
He was praying for God to give them the spiritual strength they needed to recognize that these riches were theirs. MacArthur wrote, and I'm quoting him a little bit here in this sermon because he had some really good material on this. He says, a, a certain rich English eccentric named Julian Ellis Morris liked to dress like a tramp and sell razor blades, soap, and shampoo door to door. After a day's work, he would return to his beautiful mansion, put on formal attire, and have his chauffeur drive him to an exclusive restaurant in his limousine. Sometimes he would catch a flight to Paris and spend the evening there. Many Christians live something like Mr. Morris, spending their day-to-day lives in apparent spiritual poverty and only occasionally enjoying the rich, vast, the rich, vast riches of, his glo- of the glory that their heavenly Father has given them. How tragic to go around in the tattered rags of our own inadequacy when we could be living sumptuously in the superabundance of God's unspeakable riches. Oh, this is just incredible. How often is it that we as believers fail to realize who we are and what we have? In, in so many ways, and, and we're, we're so intrigued by and yet critical of the prodigal son, and yet, because what? He came from a home where he was well provided for and abundantly blessed, and his father was wealthy, and, and half of the inheritance was his. I mean, this kid came from this vastness of wealth and riches and did not even realize what he had and went off into the muckety-muck with the pigs, preferring swill over the, you know, riches and delicious food and provision of God. How, how is it, and you know, we're critical of, why would he do such a thing? But we do that very same thing when we fail to realize the spiritual blessings that we have and who we are, what we even have access to, this power of God and we, and we settle, and we settle, and we settle, and we would rather crawl around in mud and in filth. That's pretty much what he's saying, MacArthur was. We just don't realize who we are and what we have, and we settle. Having our inner beings, our spirits is what inner being means, strengthened with power through the Spirit is really the first step. It really is the first step towards victorious, abundant living. I mean, if you want to stop crawling around with the pigs, and when I say pigs, I don't mean other people. I mean the way that this world is in the lures of the devil and, and sin, and, sin and, and fleshly things, and that's really what it is. We settle for those things. If you really want to move past that and begin to experience and enjoy God's provision and, and, and even who you are and what you have and what is there for you and what awaits you, the first step is to have your inner spirit strengthened. We have to have our inner strength, because essentially the inner being, the inner person, 
who we are on the inside, our, our spirit. Only God can reach that part of who we are. Only God can strengthen because only He can reach our spirit, our inner being, means that only He can strengthen it. See, God works, God's work, it, it begins with salvation, no doubt. He quickens or regenerates our inner being, our spirit, right? He brings us to new life. That's how it starts. And then He moves on to His main course of work, which still has to do with our inner being. Because that is where spiritual life exists and it must grow. Although the outer physical being becomes weaker and weaker with age, right? We all realize that. Every week I get a few more wrinkles, a few more gray hairs, a few more pains. This happens. Even though the physical being becomes weaker and weaker with age, the inner spiritual being should continually grow stronger and stronger. The inner man grows stronger. While the outer man is failing and falling apart, the inner man is being strengthened and grown and conformed to Christ. How? With the power through His Spirit. Only God's Spirit can strengthen our spirits. He is the one who energizes, revitalizes, and empowers us. You can see that over in Acts 1.8. Paul understood this, and this is why he prayed for God to do this for the Ephesians. He understood that they weren't going to get there on their own, that they had to be strengthened from the inside by the very power of God if they were going to come to realize who they are and what they have and how they should live. How wonderful is it to know that God desires to strengthen the inner beings of His children with His power in accordance with the riches of His glory. This is something that God desires to do in us. He wants us to know who we are. He wants us to know what we have in Christ Jesus. He wants us to know what we have coming to us in this inheritance which no eye has ever seen, no tongue can explain. It's beyond all of this. He wants us to know these things. He desires that we would know. Paul's desire was to see The power of God manifested inside the Ephesians to such a degree that something in particular would happen and then cause them to live out of the abundance of God's grace and glory. Now let's look at this something in particular, right? He's praying that God through His Spirit would strengthen their inner beings and this is what He wants to happen. This is what will happen if we are strengthened in our inner beings. And this is His goal through this prayer and this request of God. He wants this particular thing to happen. We begin to see it in verse 17a. Verse 17a, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now before diving into this little verse, this half verse, if you will, we must remember again that Paul was writing to believers, and believers already have Christ in their hearts to a degree, so he was not referring to salvation, because that's exactly what people do with this verse. They take this little 17a and say, look, this is what you have to do, pray for the spiritual strength of your being so that you can get saved. That is not what this is saying. 
He was writing to people who were already saved. So verse 17a doesn't have to do with Christ coming into the heart for the first time, regenerating and doing these works. He was not praying for them to be saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the first time. These things had already taken place, and Paul knew that. He'd already commended them for their faith in the previous chapter. What he was actually doing here is praying for their sanctification. That's their growth. He's praying that they would grow and that God would send his power to cause them to grow from the inside. He wanted them to grow in their understanding and relationship with Christ in an intimate way, in a personal way. That's what he's praying for. In the Greek, dwell has to do with taking a seat in one's home or making a place, a home, your permanent residence. That's what dwell here has to do with. That's the word picture that it paints. This is essentially what Paul prayed for. He asked the Father to strengthen their inner beings with His power through His Spirit so that Christ would dwell, what? Be seated in their hearts through faith. This is what he prayed for. This is what he wanted. This is what he was after. Now, there is a difference between being saved and dwelled by the Holy Spirit and having Christ abide in us. And some of you are all, all of a sudden, your heresy meter starts to go beep, 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 beep. There is a difference between being saved, right, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Those two things happen at the same time. Holy Spirit comes in, boom, you're saved. There's a difference between that and there is a difference between having Christ abide in our hearts. There is a difference. Beep, 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 beep. The scriptures, however, make this distinction very clear. They do. In John 14, 23, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Okay, Judas is out of the picture already. He was speaking to his disciples. His disciples were believers. And he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's saying this to save guys. I wonder if they said, well, aren't we already your home? We're saved. We have the Spirit. Uh... Now, there's a difference. Jesus points out a difference here when he says this. In Revelation 3.20, which is one of the most misused passages in all of creation, Jesus was speaking to the believers at the church at Laodicea who had become lukewarm who had become complacent, who had become apathetic to the things of God, who had become, in other words, disobedient. He told them to repent, right? He said, repent. I'll take away your lampstand. Repent. And then he said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, These examples that I've given, just a couple, there's more. These examples that I've given you have to do with Christ abiding in our hearts, not with salvation, which means that they should not be used in evangelism. How many times have you heard Greg Laurie or someone else say, he stands at the door of your heart. Just receive him for the first time and you'll be saved. You're destroying this passage by saying this. That's not what it means. We're talking about 
We're talking about intimate fellowship. We're talking about Christ taking the seat of our heart. We're talking about being pure so these things can happen. But there's a difference between that. Does the Spirit of Christ enter into the saved person? When the person gets saved, does the Spirit of Christ enter into the person in a sense? Absolutely. But there's a difference between that and the abiding of Christ in the heart. And that's what these passages address. He's telling the Laodiceans, if you repent and do what you're supposed to do, your heart will become my happy home. But right now, I can't dwell there. Not in the way that you need. Not in the way that it should be. That's what he tells the Laodiceans. You see, the common denominator in those two passages, and probably in every other passage that has to do with this difference here, the common denominator is obedience. Our obedience to God's word impacts the abiding presence of Christ in our hearts. It plays a huge part in how he abides in us. Obedience makes our hearts a happy home for Christ, but disobedience ruins the accommodations. It does. But the Spirit came into me, and that can't ever change. Well, you know what? You're right in a way. You're sealed in the Spirit. But don't you think for a moment that your corrupt, you know, mischievous, disobedient, sinful, wicked life as a believer that Christ is happy in your heart? Don't you think that for a moment? Don't be a fatalist in that once I'm saved, that's it, and now I can do what I want. You are destroying the temple of Christ by thinking this way and living this way. And we tend to be fatalists. We tend to think, well, once saved, always saved, and so I can just kind of do whatever I want, and I don't really have to be pure or righteous or any of these things because I just I have the Spirit and I can just kind of go about my business. Well, you know what? Revelation 3.20 is for you then. Christ is outside the door of your heart saying, I can come in, but you better get right. You, you gotta, there's, a, there's a reckoning that needs to happen here. You need to realize something. That you have tarnished and ruined my abode. That you have defiled my temple. That's what it means. Doesn't have to do with, I'll save you for the first time. It has to do with, I'll come in and sanctify you and make you like me, but you need to repent. You know, this is, this is why Paul warned the Corinthians to stay away from sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The believer who unites himself with a prostitute unites Christ with a prostitute in a sense. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it under any circumstances. Do not do that. Do not drag Christ who abides in you through that experience. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. You're his child. You shouldn't be even considering doing such things. This is what he says in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Because this is what the Corinthians were doing. Paul refers to them as, look, don't do this. Why? Because you are the temple of Christ. I'm getting a little heated up here and fired up, but you know what? I want you to know that, that, that this passion that's going out about this subject is coming right back to this guy because I'm the number one offender in this room. 
that I don't treat this like the temple of the Lord at times. That, that, I, that I am not working constantly to die to myself, to carry my cross. Why? To cancel out my flesh, to choose righteousness. Why? So that Christ can be happy here and satisfied. You know, Paul's concern also was that the Ephesians knew Christ in an elementary kind of way. He also understood that God could change their situation. He knew that the Father could take them from a simple baby-like understanding, which is where they were at spiritually, to a higher plane where they would come to know Christ more intimately and experience a deeper satisfaction in Him and begin to bear incredible fruit for the Lord. Before any of that could happen, their inner being had to be strengthened and Christ had to take a happy seat in their hearts, which means they probably had to deal with some sin. MacArthur again, Jesus enters the house of our hearts the moment He saves us, but He cannot live there in comfort and satisfaction until it is cleansed of sin and filled with His will. God is gracious beyond comprehension and infinitely patient. And let me tell you, I am so happy about that. But may we not use that as a license for sin. He continues to love those of His children who insist on spurning His will, but He cannot be happy or satisfied in such a heart. He cannot be fully at home until He is allowed to dwell in our hearts through the continuing faith that trusts Him to exercise His Lordship over every aspect of our lives. Now I want you also to notice how it says, through faith, how does Christ dwell in our hearts? By the power of God? Absolutely. Right? This is what Paul has taught us so far. It's, it's that God strengthens our inner being so that Christ can take up residency in this full way. So it happens through the power of God, no doubt. But it is the power of God through faith. Faith is the conduit by which God energizes us with His power. And faith enables us to believe that the indwelling of Christ in the heart is a reality and not just a possibility or cool phrase. See, without faith, this doesn't happen at all. Without faith, there is no knowing God or pleasing God. There is none of this transfer of power. Nothing without faith, without believing, which is a gift as well. When Christ dwells in our hearts in this way or in the way that Paul described, several things will start to happen. It just kind of starts a chain reaction. He listed them in verses 17b through 19b. Let's look at each of them. Here's what happens when our inner being is is, um, strengthened by God's Spirit and that Christ, right, Christ dwells in our hearts. He takes up residency. He is seated there. We make Him comfortable. We've done, you know, 
we've done an account of our lives and we're repenting, whatever it is, God has done this thing for us through his own power too. This is what happens. This is the result. This is the chain of events. Number one, and that's verse 17b, we will become what? Rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. When Christ settles down in our hearts, He begins to display His own love in us and through us. This is what happens. In simple terms, we become loving. And and, and I'll tell you this, if, if we have a hard time If we have a hard time loving others, maybe they're difficult or whatever, but if we have a really hard time with loving others or if we harbor animosity towards others or hatred or any of these sorts of things, whether it be a political person or your spouse or a child or a coworker or whatever, you got to ask yourself a serious question. Is Christ reigning and ruling in my heart? Because if he's in my heart, then I should have a heart of love you got to ask yourself this. I don't really love people. Well, maybe this is why. Maybe Christ isn't in your heart because if He is, love is going to come out of you. We don't like that. We like to condition everything. We like to put, you know, these conditions on our love and all that. Well, if they treat me right, then I'll love them if we do this and that. that, that. Now, if you have Christ, yeah, that's how Christ operated. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loved even when they were killing Him. If you have a hard time loving people, loving others, whether they're difficult or not, if you have a hard time loving opposite people in a political party, if you have a hard time loving anyone, you need to ask yourself this question, is Christ ruling and reigning in my heart? I don't think he is because I don't have the love of Christ coming through me. Guilty. Christ might not be abiding in us the way he should be because of sin, because of spiritual ignorance, or something like that. What should we do? We should confess our sins to God. Maybe ask him to strengthen us in our inner being with his power so that Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. You see, if you're unloving, you can become loving because Christ can take up residency in your heart and you can become loving. But I'm going to tell you this, the absence of Christ means worldly love. It's conditioned. It's qualified. But you have Christ in your heart, you're going to love despite how you're treated, despite what people think, do, act, believe. I know it ain't easy. That's the first thing that can happen. We become rooted and grounded in love when Christ is here. Secondly, we will have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, verse 18. You know, we cannot comprehend the fullness of love unless we are immersed in love, unless it is the very root and ground of our being. When someone asked the famed jazz trumpeter Louis Armstrong, and I really love his music. Somebody asked him to explain jazz. He replied, man, if I've got to explain it to you, you ain't got it. Are you kidding me? I got to explain it to you? If I got to explain it to you, you know nothing of it. That's what he said. Pretty clever, huh? I'm sure that guy went, well, I'm an idiot. I'll see you later. 
in some ways, that simplistic idea applies to love. It cannot truly be understood and comprehended until it is experienced. Yet the experience and working of love Paul's, Paul is talking about in this passage is not emotional or subjective. It is not nice feelings or warm sentiments that bring such comprehension, but the actual working of God's Spirit and God's Son in our hearts and lives to produce a love that is pure, sincere, selfless, and serving. To be rooted and grounded in love requires being rooted and grounded in God who is love. Amen, buddy. He's like, I like love. I know. Hi. He's just, dude, this guy's paying attention. He's hearing a sermon. You better be a lover. So sweet. If we desire to comprehend, know, and experience the breadth, length, height, and depth of Christ's love, Christ must become seated on the throne of our hearts. Our hearts must become His abode, His dwelling place, and we must be willing to do whatever is necessary to ensure that He is welcome. If we pursue righteousness and holiness and confess our sins regularly, He will be welcome and He will manifest His presence in us in this way. Number three, we will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Verse 19a. Knowing Christ's love takes us beyond human knowledge and a human understanding of love because it is from an infinitely higher source. The world cannot comprehend the great love of Christ, uh, the great love that Christ gives, because it cannot understand Christ. Worldly love is based on attraction and therefore lasts only as long as the attraction. Christ's love is based on His own nature and therefore lasts forever. Worldly love lasts until it is offended or rebuffed. Christ's love lasts despite every offense and every rebuff. Worldly love loves for what it can get. Christ's love Love for what it can give. It's the absolute opposite of worldly love. And so what? Test yourself. If Christ is here, you're going to have the Christ-like love. If not, you're going to have this conditioned love and all of this stuff. When Christ dwells in our hearts, we will be able to discern the difference between the pure, satisfying, and deep love of God and the impure, unsatisfying, shallow love of the world. That's what he means here by, you know, having the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It has to do with discerning the right kind of love and the wrong kind of love. When Christ is in our hearts, we gain this discernment and we begin to share and pour out Christ's love and we have the warning signs of all the other forms of love which are unsatisfying and shallow and impure and selfish. Four, we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Huh? 
19b. The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. MacArthur once again, I should have just probably copied his sermon. It was much better than mine. To be filled with all the fullness of God is incomprehensible, even to God's own children. It is incredible and indescribable. There is no way this side of heaven we can fathom that truth. We can only believe it and praise God for it. To begin to grasp the magnitude of that truth, we must think of every attribute and every characteristic of God. We must think of His power, majesty, wisdom, love, mercy, patience, kindness, long-suffering, and every other thing that God is and does. (laughs) Augustine wrote, God is not what you imagine or what you think you understand If you understand, you have failed. (laughs) So, you know, with those two quotes being put before you, I won't pretend to know more about this subject than MacArthur or Augustine or Augustine. So I'm not going to try to explain it any further, but I do know one thing. I mean, think about it. We're talking about the fullness of God here. I do know one thing. Paul was not exaggerating. You see, a lot of interpreters and commentators tend to think that Paul loved to use hyperbole. No. Because this seems like a hyperbolic statement. You'll just be filled with all the fullness of God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. God is infinite. God is all this. That's hyperbole. You'll have some of God in you, right? That's what you actually mean. No, 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 no. No, no, no. He was being truthful. He was, he was being real when he said this. He was not exaggerating. He made other statements about the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 13. We haven't gotten there yet. The fullness of God in the life of a believer who has Christ dwelling in his heart through faith is a reality. It is a reality. How can we be filled with all the fullness of God through the indwelling Christ? How does this happen? How how is it even a possibility? Well, you have to ask yourself, who is Christ? He is God. If Christ is God and the fullness of God, as it says in Colossians 2.9, and He dwells in our hearts, then we are filled with all the fullness of God, aren't we? If Christ is fully in our hearts, if He dwells there, then we are filled with all the fullness of God because Christ is the perfect image of God. Christ is the fullness of God made flesh. If Christ is here, the fullness of God is here. That's how it works. Isn't it wonderful to know that that through the indwelling presence of Christ in our hearts, we can become rooted and grounded in love? and gain strength to comprehend the fullness of His love, and gain love discernment, and become filled with all the fullness of God? Why don't we just add what we've read and studied here and learned today to the heap of God's blessings that are displayed in Ephesians? This is just one more thing 
for us on top of everything else that he's listed. Think back to chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, where he goes through that list of spiritual blessings. God is so, this is an understatement, God is so amazingly, amazingly good to his children, you and I. It's incredible. If you're a believer and not sure that you have experienced the power of God in Christ in your heart in this way, it, it, you know, you, and I, I was faced with this as I was writing this te- sermon. I, I was like, have I experienced Christ in this fullness in my heart? Does he actually dwell? Has he ever dwelled in me the way that Paul describes here? I was faced with that and I was mortified. What if I'm a head believer? What if I have a little bit of it going on here, but it's not what Paul is describing here? It really scared me to think. I shudder to think. Well, I think the first thing that we would do if we, if we think that we have not experienced Christ in this way, the first thing that we do is do exactly what Paul did. We pray, right? We pray for God to pull it off through his own power that he would strengthen our inner being, that he would convict us of any sin that we might have, that he would purify us and make this the abode for Christ and that he would put Christ there in this amazing way. I think that's the first thing. Pray for your own soul. Pray as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Pray Paul's prayer over yourself and continue to do so until it happens. And it will. I love what Leonard Ravenhill wrote. The only power that God will yield to is that of prayer. You want something to happen and you talk to people about it and you gripe and you wish, and you wish, and you wish. Pray! If his statement is true, then prayer is the answer for getting things done. But you see, we're crisis Christians. We pray when, well, when it's convenient, we pray over meals, and we pray when the bottom falls out. And James says, you have not, because you ask not. If you want this to happen in your heart and life, pray and pray and pray. Now let's look at his closing statement. Verses 20 to 21. This is just real simple. Now to him, listen to this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul basically tells God in his prayer, he's praying to the Father, right? He's on his knees, he's praying, and he tells God that he knows that God can answer his prayer. I know you can do it, Father. And he even tells the Father, I know you can go far beyond what I'm asking you for. I know that you can do far more than I could ever pray for, than I could ever think. I know that you can do it and you can go beyond what I'm asking you for. So you know what? You have my, uh, my clearance to do that. 
Paul had big, audacious faith. He was bold. He was confident. He wasn't afraid to ask God for these things and and to challenge God to go beyond. It says that we can approach the throne of grace with all boldness. What do you think that means? It means we come to him and say, Father, do it. That's what it means for you. It doesn't mean, you know, if you'd like to. It means, Father, Father, do it. Make this prayer happen. Make, answer this prayer. Save this person or sanctify this person. Give me, the, give me Christ in my heart the way that I need it. It, it. That's what it means that we can approach the throne of grace with all boldness. That we can come and beseech Him passionately and fervently and consistently. And I'm reminded of that old widow that kept asking the king for something. He's finally like, stop bothering me. You got it. I wonder if the father just says, this kid will not stop. Spirit, make it happen. We ask not because we, we have not because we ask not. Paul was confident, he was bold, he was audacious. He knew that the father could meet this great great need of the Ephesians to go deeper. He knew it, but he knew that God could, the Father could exceed it a trillion fold. Paul's closing statement also reminds us that our prayers should include some form of doxology. A doxology is basically a statement about God's greatness and glory. Let's just be transparent and admit that most of our prayers are self-focused or others-focused. They're not very doxological. How often do we praise God in our prayers? Most of our prayers are, do this, do that. It's what we do. We need to begin to exalt God in our prayers. We should read through the Psalms to see how David and the other psalmists Exalted God in their prayers, exalted God in their poems, exalted God in their songs. There's no greater book in the Bible that shows the exaltation of God, I would think, than the Psalms. Maybe the Gospels. One way we can do this is that we can switch our technique. We can begin to use the Acts prayer method which stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, that's doxology. That's exaltation. That's praising God for who He is. That's glorifying God in the prayer. You are the creator. You are majestic. You are beautiful. You are all-powerful. That's, that's adoration. That's doxology. If you switch to this mode of prayer, you can hit these things that we need to hit. you got confession. We tell God our sins. And usually our prayers have to do with telling God our sins and then asking Him for things. We leave out the adoration. But Acts, you can adore Him. You can confess. You have thanksgiving. That's thanking God for who He is and what He does or what He's going to do. There's supplication. That's when you begin to tell God your needs and the needs of others. Acts. A-C-T-S. It's really easy to remember. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Write it down. Use it. Well, then I'll be praying for four hours every day. Well, God, praise God, you'll be Mark, like Martin Luther then. 
yeah, I had a 12-hour work day today. I had to spend three of it in prayer so I could get through the rest of the hours. That's what Luther would say. Uh, you, can, you can do acts in 10 minutes. It's not like, oh. I think we should use it. Closing. All of God's people are to be like Paul in having an overriding sensitivity to the spiritual needs of others for the salvation of the unsaved and the spiritual protection and growth of the saved. We are to be sensitive to the spiritual needs of our wives, our husbands, our children, pastors, fellow church members, neighbors, friends, fellow students, co-workers. We are to pray for everyone with whom we have contact, contact at all, as well as for many others, like as, such as government officials, politicians, Christian leaders, missionaries, even people we've never met but we've heard of. We should be praying for all of these people. We should be sensitive. I want to lay down a challenge for us. In the back table, there is a stack of these cards right back there by the tissue. And at the top of it, it says, 30-day prayer challenge. I am praying for dot, dot, dot. And I want you to write the names of five people on this card right here. And, I mean, if you have five members in your family, that's fine. You can even put yourself on there. That's fine. I think it'd be really cool if you put an unbeliever on your card, someone you know that is not saved. And then I want you to pray specifically for these five people. And at the bottom, I put an asterisk and a little note. Pray for salvation if you have someone on there that's not saved. Pray for sanctification if you have believers on there. You, you want God to grow them in their faith, spiritual strength, right? Even kind of like what we were talking about here, that God would grant and give spiritual strength through His Spirit for a number of reasons, however the Spirit leads you in that, and then also for safety. You can pray for safety for these people. Safety from the enemy, the devil, whatever kind of safety you want. That's the four S's, salvation, sanctification, spiritual strength. Actually, it's, I guess it's five S's, and safety. And I want you to take this card and fill this out and do this, and I want you to start on December 1st, and I want you to do it through the whole month of December. Well, that's asking a bit much. Um, yeah, but I'll tell you what, I'm the first one to accept the challenge and I'm going to do it. So do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you, if you have no intention of following through, don't do it. Maybe, maybe the first step is to take the card and to pray over whether you should do it or not and to pray over who you're going to put on this list. And then what I want to do is uh, in January, I'd like for you to send me emails telling me your experience and what you saw God do. And it's very likely that you might see fruit in the lives of those that you prayed for, but it's even more likely that you'll see a lot of fruit in your own life. Because so often our prayers that we're making for others, they have a direct impact on us. Okay, so will you accept the challenge?